This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this uh, evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9, which promises that if we simply acknowledge or admit our sins to Him, God immediately forgives us of those sins and all other sins uh, unremembered, forgot, those that are forgotten or unknown, and He immediately cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this privilege and opportunity to gather together, study your word, for the freedom that we have in this nation that gives us this opportunity. We continue to pray for our nation, for its freedom. We continue to pray for our president, for those in both civil government as well as in the military who provide key leadership and counsel. We pray that you would guide and direct them. We pray for our troops overseas. We pray that you would watch over them. We pray for those from this congregation, that you would keep them safe and that they would have opportunities that they would avail to present the gospel to those who are with them and to communicate a biblical viewpoint to those around them. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we might be refreshed as we are filled with the Spirit with your word. We pray that you would... Uh, challenge us, teach us, and that we would be responsive to that challenge. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, many of you heard the announcement on Thursday night related to Ulan Muslimov, but others of you were not here. Ulan is a young man. I won't say he's a missionary because he's in his own country. He's a young pastor who left uh, Kyrgyzstan several years ago to take a little migration by bus to to Almaty in Kazakhstan, where Jim Myers and several of us, including uh, Pastor Bruce Bumgardner from over at Pine Valley, myself, George Meisinger, others were having a pastor's conference for about a month. Uh, Ulan really learned that he needed to know the Bible. He hadn't been saved very long. He was led to the Lord by some uh, missionaries in Kyrgyzstan just a couple of years before that. And about a year or two after that, about 2002, the, uh, the former Soviet republics dropped their visa requirements, which had made it difficult for people to move from one former republic to another. So Ulan was able to move from Kyrgyzstan up to Kiev for a couple of years to go through training at uh, Jim Meyer's Word of God Bible Institute. And uh, last year, he finished his training, went back to Kyrgyzstan, started a church, had about 12 men he was training. And a little over a month ago, after this so-called democratic revolution in Kyrgyzstan, which is putting a bunch of Muslims in power, they, um, uh, the militia came in and sat in the back of the, the apartment where he was teaching, and afterwards they arrested him and the men and threw them in jail and beat them. Uh, he was released. And we have been praying for him and for them during this time. We had not heard anything for almost a month. And then on Wednesday morning or Thursday morning, I got an email from Jim that he had received an email from Ulan that he had indeed been rearrested, thrown in jail for a couple of weeks, and that as far as we know, he is now out of the country. We don't really know 
where he is. Uh, someone traced the email and that it originated out of Norway, so it's possible he and his family got out with some refugee group, but at this point that's uh, speculation. So we need to continue to pray for Ulan and for his wife, for his family, for those believers in Kyrgyzstan, and that they might be strengthened in solid witnesses uh, for the Lord and not waver in their faith. But as I was thinking about this, and I'm sure this is true for many of you, I got to wondering, what's it like to live in hostile territory? What's it like to live in hostile territory? And that fits our passage today in Revelation 2, verse 12. The church in Pergamum. The church in Pergamum is in hostile territory. The church in Pergamum is a church that has compromised severely in order to live and get by in hostile territory, a threat that is very real in the life of many believers. In fact, if we were to be harsh about it, we would say that one of the major problems we have in our own culture, because I believe, as we'll see, that almost every culture is inherently hostile to biblical truth, because every culture is a product of human viewpoint. And even though there may be many positive things in a culture, such as ours in the United States, where we have a rich heritage in Judeo-Christian values, and the Bible has been taught in the past, and there is a residue of blessing on the basis of the faith of our forefathers, nevertheless, we live in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile to biblical Christianity. And if you are a believer today, we need to recognize that we are not living in friendly territory, even though perhaps in the microcosm of your experience, you are living in friendly territory. Overall, we're not. So there's a relevance to this epistle that is more than superficial. Verse 12 of Revelation chapter 2 reads, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos... Right. These things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. So we need to recognize that the introduction, as we've seen in the previous two postcards, is addressed to the angel. Now, in the past, I've gone through the various options that have been suggested through time and in church history over the meaning of the word angel. Is this to be taken literally? that this is a literal angel that is being addressed, or is this to be understood in in a secondary or tertiary meaning, such as messenger, and perhaps even if it's messenger, therefore it could apply to the pastor. Now, there are many good men and Bible scholars who take it that way, but there's a weakness in changing the meaning or taking that secondary meaning as a human messenger or as a pastor, and that is you just don't have word usage to document that interpretation. You don't just look at a word and say, well, you know, I can't understand how this could be addressed to an angel that somehow doesn't factor into my uh, preconceived notions here. Why in the world would this take place? Let's look for an alternative explanation. When you, The first thing you have to do is look at the word angelos and say, okay, is this ever used of a pastor? No, it's not. Is it used of a human messenger only in rare occasions? How is it used in the overall body of Revelation? It's used in the overall body of the book of Revelation to refer to supernatural spirit beings that God created before the foundation of the earth, according to Job 47. So, therefore, we have to line up with where the evidence leads us. And the evidence leads us to the conclusion that these must be angels, not human messengers. Well, then we have to ask the question, why? Why would God address these short epistles, these statements to angels rather than human churches? And we went through a lot of detail showing that this is really related to the angelic conflict, that angels serve as witnesses within a heavenly courtroom circumstance or situation, and that's the backdrop. They are evidentiary witnesses 
to the outworking of the plan of God in human history and to the outworking of His justice and His righteousness in human history. So they stand as witnesses and they are giving testimony as well within this angelic conflict and this courtroom situation. So if we look at it from that perspective, these angels are functioning something like the way a U.S. marshal can function in a courtroom today, and they are overseeing the outworking of the justice of God in these churches. And that fits the context of each of these seven short epistles. They're not epistles in the same way that the other New Testament epistles are written for the exhortation and instruction and doctrinal exposition to various uh, Christians throughout the uh, Roman world at that time. Therefore, there's a difference. What's the difference? The difference is these are written to either praise or to condemn each of these congregations. They are not written as doctrinal uh, expositions. They're not written to explain principles of the Christian life. They're written to challenge each of these congregations with their successes and their failures and a challenge to the fact that eventually we'll all be standing before the judgment seat of Christ and there will be special rewards to those who persevere to the end in their Christian life and overcome and demonstrate that victory in the spiritual life. And so these angels serve as heavenly witnesses to the outworking of the justice and righteousness of God in every congregation. So the angel is addressed. Now, that, as I pointed out at the beginning, what, what we see here is that the angel is sent this critique sheet for each congregation. And then the entire book of Revelation was written out when it was revealed to John on the island of Patmos. And then it was copied seven times, and the entire 22-chapter book was sent to each congregation. So you have individual critique sheets sent to the angel and addressed to the angel. And then you have the entire book written to everybody. And then at the end of each one of these uh, seven short evaluation statements, you have the statement, let, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. But the first mention of church in each one of these is to the singular church. But at the end it says, let him listen to what the Spirit says to the churches as a whole. So there's an address to each individual congregation that existed at that time in the first century, and, but there's a broader application for the entire church age. Each one of these congregations represent certain trends among congregations in the church age in which we live. So the angel is addressed in terms of the evaluation role of that angel in the courtroom scenario. To the angel of the church in Pergamos. Sometimes this is written uh, Pergamum, M-U-M, which is how I'll use it, or Pergamon, M-O-N. There are various forms of the word. It actually doesn't occur anywhere in the nominative case. So Pergamum is the most likely form. Now Pergamum was seated in about 55 miles north of Smyrna, the previous location which was out on the Aegean, and it was about 25 miles inland from the Aegean. The modern city is known as Bergama, with a B, not the harder labial P, Pergamum. The word Pergamum means parchment. It was where parchment was first manufactured. There's a verb and that's an antiquated English verb called pergamonized, which has to do with uh, the treatment of and manufacture of parchment. Uh, in the ancient world, writing material was uh, relatively rare. You had the development of paper uh, or papyrus out of Egypt, but we're not in Egypt. We're up in Asia Minor. And the uh, uh, two other forms of writing material were developed. Vellum, which is technically calfskin, 
was prepared for, as writing material, and parchment was technically writing material that was processed from other animal skins. And they would take the animal skins of sheep and goats, and they would soak it in various uh, solutions and then stretch the skins on a frame for the cleaning and removal of the hair. And while the skin was wet and stretched out, they were then allowed to dry. So they'd be stretched until it was fairly thin, and then it was allowed to dry, a process which allowed the, the fibers to set, because as it dried out, the, there's sort of a natural uh, glue element in the, in the pelt fluid would dr- dry and harden, and so you would have a thin, smooth writing uh, surface. And so this is how parchment was developed. Pergamum traces its history to the 5th century B.C., which is the time of the uh, glorious era of Greek culture. But its influence as a city dates from 282 B.C., when Philoteros, the ruler uh, over the city of Pergamum, refused to continue to be subordinate to Lysimachus. Remember, Lysimachus was one of the four chief generals under Alexander the Great who divided the the empire of Alexander among themselves at the time of Alexander's death. Lysimachus ruled Greece and roughly the western part of Asia Minor. Well, Philoteros refused to subordinate himself to Lysimachus, and he revolted and established the kingdom of Pergamum. So from roughly 282 B.C. until 131 B.C., there was a succession of kings in the Pergamum Empire, and they either had, uh, they had one of two names, either Eumenes, E-U-M-E-N-E-S, or Atalus. So you had Atalus I, and Atalus II, and Atalus III. So these were the, the two main names in the dynasty. And sometimes it was very small. At other times, uh, it was quite large. When it was small, it pretty much just covered the valley itself. And when it was at its peak, it covered much of uh, western Turkey. As it grew in size, though, it came into conflict with one of the other major empires at the time, which is that of the Seleucid Empire. The Seleucids, Seleucus was another of Alexander's generals, and he took control of the area, roughly eastern Turkey, Syria, Palestine, that area. And as the kingdom of Pergamum uh, advanced in the 2nd century B.C., it came into conflict with the Seleucids, who originally had supported them, of course, in their revolt against Lysimachus. But under Antiochus the Great, the Seleucids defeated the kingdom of Pergamum and reduced it in size and significance. In 133 B.C., Attalus III turned the province over to Rome, and Rome renamed it the province of Asia. So when you read in the Bible about Asia, it's not talking about China and India and what we refer to as the Far East. In Rome, Asia was the province that covered the western part of modern Turkey. Pergamum was the official provincial capital for 250 years, and it was still significant in A.D. 95, the time of the writing of the book of Revelation, though Ephesus was rising in its influence. Pergamum, though, had a rich religious heritage and a heritage of idolatry. Everywhere you looked in Pergamum, there were statues of the gods, there were altars to the various gods and goddesses, sacred groves and temples filled the city. Outside the city, there was a 1,300-foot high hill that was covered with temples and altars to the various gods and goddesses of the Greek and Anatolian pantheons. This is the Acropolis in Pergamum. And on that Acropolis, there were temples to Zeus, Athena, Dionysius, and Asclepius. Zeus was also known as Zeus 
Soter. Zeus Soter was Zeus the Savior. As you see on the pictures, there are various altars and temples, the remains of those in, in Pergamum. This is a picture of the altar at the Temple of Zeus, very famous, one of the largest altars seen in the ancient world. Here is an aerial shot where you see the dimensions of that altar to Zeus. Zeus was known as Zeus Soter, meaning Zeus the Savior. So you see how human viewpoint pagan religions always, always counterfeit Christianity in some way or another. You had a major temple to Zeus. You also had a temple to Athena. You had temple to Dionysius, who was the god of wine. The Greeks, uh, excuse me, the Romans called him Bacchus. Dionysius was a god who has its, his origin in Turkey or in Asia Minor. He was the god of the royal family of Pergamum. And then you had the chief temple there, which was the temple to Asclepius. Asclepius was the god of healing. His symbol was the caduceus. The caduceus is the cross with the serpent entwined on it. That's where we get that. You see a doctor wearing that. You see a, a physician in the, in the medical corps, in the military, and they're wearing a caduceus. That's where that symbol comes from. It's traced back to the Greek god Asclepius. Actually, he, as Dionysius, had his origin among the Anatolian fertility religions. The temple to Asclepius was a shrine that was the focus of pilgrimage from all over the ancient world. And in the temple, they fed a live serpent in the center of the temple, kept him alive, and that serpent was central to all of their religious rites. In fact, they allowed serpents, non-poisonous serpents, to freely roam throughout the grounds of the temple. And so you never knew where you would run into them. And at night, in the central sanctuary of the temple, they would, any sick people would go and spend the night. And if they brushed up against one of these snakes in the nighttime, it was said to heal them. So they looked forward to that. Not something that I would be uh, happy with. So as you can tell from the pictures, it was the, the ruins uh, of that temple are quite extensive. And this again is another shot of the Asclepium, the temple to Asclepius, uh, the uh, northern Stoa walkway and the uh, theater in the background. Just a few shots to let you know how much they devoted to this one individual. Furthermore, besides the temples to the various gods and goddesses, you also had the rise of emperor worship in Rome. Emperor worship was one of the largest factors in the religious context of Pergamum. Pergamum was the first city in Asia to establish a temple devoted to the worship of the Roman emperor. This occurred in 29 B.C. when they built a temple to, for the worship of Augustus. Later, the, they added a second temple to the goddess Roma. Remember, we studied in Smyrna that they were the first to have a temple to Rome. But Pergamum is the first to have a temple devoted specifically to the worship of an individual emperor. A second temple was built to honor Trajan at the end of the first century. Trajan reigned as Caesar from 98, from A.D. 98 to A.D. 117, and for this the city was honored. They had quite an enormous temple built there for the worship of Trajan. Therefore, Pergamum was favored by Rome over Ephesus and Smyrna for various blessings and protection and business deals and commerce. 
While in other cities, Christians were threatened maybe one or two times a year uh, with offering incense to Caesar and swearing allegiance to him, which was a, uh, it was a religious rite. You had to declare that Caesar was Lord. Now, this is one of the great challenges to any believer. You could easily come along as a believer and say, well, this really doesn't mean anything. If I say it, it's just fine, and we'll go along to get along, and I'll survive, and I'll live, and I won't be put to death, and I'll be able to witness to other people, and I'll be able to continue to have a ministry with other people. And we could come up with all kinds of rationalizations for why it really doesn't mean anything. It's really not significant to say that Caesar is Lord. But that's not how the early Christians treated it, because you see, this was a statement that had significance or meaning. I often wonder today, in the light of the impact that uh, uh, postmodernism has had on Christians and our view of truth, that truth is ultimately relative and it's subjective in its orientation, how many believers today would come up with some sort of self-justifying rationale for swearing allegiance to Caesar and saying that Caesar is Lord. But in Pergamum, it wasn't just a problem they would face once or twice a year. In Pergamum, this was something they would face on a daily basis. So that emperor worship in Pergamum was the primary religious system of the time and threatened the very existence of the congregation in Pergamum. So in Revelation 2.12 we read, And to the angel of the church at Pergamum write. Now Pergamum was also known for one other thing in the ancient world, and that was its library. It had one of the largest libraries, second only to the famous library that existed in Alexandria in Egypt. Now that library was destroyed in the Uh, first century B.C. But Pergamum was in competition, and that's really how how parchment was developed, because as the library was started, the the king in Pergamum was importing papyrus from Egypt. But when Ptolemy Epiphanes, who was the ruler in Egypt, discovered what they were using the papyrus for and that they were trying to compete with their library in Alexandria, he ceased exporting papyrus to Pergamum. So that forced a little crisis and that caused the uh, development of the technology to produce parchment. So that's just a little added extra attraction. There were about 200,000 volumes in the library in Pergamum when Cleopatra had them moved from Pergamum to uh, Alexandria to try to rebuild the library there. That library then was destroyed by the Saracens, uh, a Muslim group, in A.D. 642. So the Lord addresses the church in Pergamum. These things, says he who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Of course, this is a reference that takes us back to the original vision that John had of the Lord Jesus Christ on the island of Patmos. He says he has the sharp two-edged sword. This is the Romphia. The Romphia was a large, broad sword. This is not the Machaira, which was the shorter uh, defensive and offensive weapon that uh, the Roman soldier is well known for, which he carried in combat. This is the larger broadsword that was uh, initially developed by the Thracians. The word Romphia occurs several times in the book of Revelation, and the first time we see it is in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, when John sees that vision of Uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. The fact that it came out of his mouth is an image that goes back to the Old Testament. In Isaiah 11, verse 4, we have a picture of the judgment that will be brought by the coming Messiah when he establishes a kingdom. But with righteousness, the verse says, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. 
He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. This is that picture of judgment. The Rompia sword was a sword, uh, was a battle sword, and it was a sword that is used in the book of Revelation as a picture of the judgment that comes from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 116, the Rompia denotes judicial authority. Actually, two images are combined. The image of a warrior defeating his enemies on the one hand and of pronouncing judgment upon them on the other hand. So the image of the Rompia is that of the uh, judicial condemnation of God's Word. As the Lord Jesus Christ returns, He will judge mankind. Revelation 1.16, He had in His right hand the seven stars, which we've seen are the seven churches, and out of His mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and His sun and His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Again, we have the use of it in uh, Revelation 2.16, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. This is the warning that comes at the end of this uh, evaluation of the church in Pergamum. And then the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the second coming in Revelation 19.15, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. That goes back to Psalm uh, 2.8. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So the whole picture here is of the Lord Jesus Christ returning at the uh, end of the tribulation period in judgment, to end the battle of Armageddon, deliver the Jews who are have trusted Him as Savior at that time, and then to establish the reign of God on the earth and to establish the Messianic kingdom. So all of this is part of that imagery of the sharp, two-edged rompium. When we look at our verse in Revelation chapter 2.12, in the Greek, the in the Greek the noun has a definite article with it. it. Has an article with it, which means it's referring back to its previous use in 116. So that connects the two passages. Now, there's also a sort of subtext in this reference. If you're looking at this and you were a citizen of Pergamum and you read that this was uh, the Lord coming with the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, you would think of something else. In Pergamum, the proconsul, the proconsul of Pergamum was granted the right of the sword by the Roman Empire, by the Caesar. And the right of the sword was the right to take life. It is the right to capital punishment. And as such, the proconsul in Pergamum had the right to take the life, to execute anyone who was deemed a threat to the Roman Empire. So if you read this, as a citizen of Pergamum, then what you would think of is that, well, the, the, the proconsul here has the right of the sword, but it's the Lord Jesus Christ who ultimately rules and judges everyone. So even if I am threatened by the oppressive power of Rome, I know that ultimately that government will come under the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we come to verse, the second verse in this section, Revelation 2.13. Revelation 2.13 we read, I know your works. Now if you're looking at a New American Standard Bible or a New International Version or one of the translations based on the Westcott-Hort theory of textual criticism, you don't have that phrase in your translation. But it's found in the majority text and the Textus Receptus, which was the, the TR, the Textus Receptus, as we've studied, was the basis for the King James translation. I believe the majority text uh, re- retains a better reading, a more accurate reading of the original than the uh, conflated and complex Westcott-Hort view. And so I think this is in the original text. 
Also, it's consistent with the other six letters. I know your works. The word work simply refers to production. It's not talking about sin. It's not talking about uh, human good or divine good. It's simply a general word for production. I know your production. But the verb is what's important. The verb is what's important. Jesus Christ says to each of these churches, I know your production. And that word for knowledge is the Greek word oida. It's a perfect active indicative. The perfect tense indicates completed action. Completed action. And the verb oida, as opposed to gnosko, those are the two verbs in Greek for knowledge, the word oida indicates an, almost an intuitive knowledge, a complete knowledge. And oida indicates the, often the omniscience of God, especially in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what this tells us is the Lord is saying, I have a complete and intimate knowledge of everything that's going on in your congregation. You can't pull the wool over my eyes. You can't get away with anything. I know the good. I know the bad. I know the indifferent. I know everything there is to know about your production as a congregation. I know your strengths. I know your weaknesses. You can't try to blow smoke at me. You can't try to rationalize anything. I know exactly what's going on. I know your production. It indicates the omniscient, intimate knowledge Christ has of every church and every believer. And then he goes on to focus on the circumstances. He knows where you dwell. He knows everything about their existence. This next verb is kat oiketo. Kat oiketo. Uh, K-A-T-O-I-K-E-O. Which means to dwell to inhabit or to reside. It indicates a settled residence. It's used frequently in Revelation with a moral significance in that it often is used to refer to the earth dwellers versus the heaven dwellers. So the earth dwellers are those who are time bound and they are oriented to the earth. Their focus is on what's happening in earth's history and earth's values in opposition to those who are oriented to God's plan and purposes. In Revelation and in the tribulation, you don't want to be classified as an earth dweller. It's a negative concept. But here, the word is used simply to refer to someone who resides or has permanent residence in a particular location. And what this is saying is that that Jesus Christ knows their circumstances. He knows what the external pressures are, how difficult it was to live in the hostile environment that was in Pergamum. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. God is fully aware of all the external pressure and adversity. He knows, uh, he is telling them, look, I know how difficult it is to live the Christian life where you are. I know the opposition. I know how hard it is, but it's no excuse. He says the same thing to us. I know what your pressures are in life. I know what the demands of your job are. I know what the pressures are from your family, your kids, your health. Whatever the circumstances may be, it's not an excuse. See, too many people want to justify their failures to uh, be involved in local church, to go to Bible class, to make doctrine number one priority in their life because of their circumstances. Well, if you just understood the demands of my career, the demands of my job, it's so tough now I'm having to work, uh, you know, work a part-time job and go to school, go to university. Uh, I have all these uh, social obligations. You know, trying to get to Bible class uh, three times a week or even to catch a tape three or four times a week is almost impossible. But the Lord is, knows what the issues are. You, we can't justify failure in the spiritual life. There's evaluation. So he says, I know where you dwell. I know the circumstances that surround your life better than you do. You dwell where Satan's throne is. You dwell where Satan's throne is. Now, there are 
a number of suggested interpretations to try to identify Satan's throne. First question we ought to ask is, is this a literal throne or is this a figurative expression? A literal throne would mean that there was some sort of overt satanic temple in Pergamum where Satan personally took up residence. And I do not think that is the case. It does not fit the biblical scenario. Remember, Satan is not omnipresent. Satan is a finite creature. He, is, he may be the most beautiful, the most intelligent, the most wily and subtle of all of God's creatures, as the Bible describes him, but he is not omnipresent. And his primary location today is where? It is in the throne of God where he's accusing believers of disobedience. And we've seen that picture in a number of places. However, Satan is also at the head of a vast network of demons who are involved in influencing human history. He is also at the head of a system of thinking which the Bible describes as cosmic Thinking, which is what energizes all human cultures in one way or another. So I think what is being said here is that at Pergamum you have something going on that represents one of the strongest forces of antagonism to Christianity and to biblical truth in their world at that time. This is a focal point of opposition. That is what Satan means. The term Satan is one who is an accuser, one who is in opposition. And so he is, and his forces, everything that he's at the head of. See, we typically speak of, uh, of a whole army of people, or a whole group of people, with reference to their leader. And the, the leader is the one who influenced them, the one who guides and directs them. And so we use that term. Uh, we speak of the leader of the group. Uh, as, as a representative of the whole, and that doesn't necessarily mean that that individual is present, and that's how it's used here. Now, what are these options? There are five suggested interpretations. Actually, there are more, but five have significance. First, the first was that, well, the throne of Satan refers to the worship of Asclepios, the worship of Asclepios in Pergamum at that time. As I pointed out earlier, we have the, it was a, a, a religious system that used a serpent as a symbol. For example, here is a picture of a serpent on one of the columns in the temple to Asclepius. Uh, there were serpents on everything. Here's a funerary uh, meal with a snake in the tree taken from that same area around in, in Pergamum. Uh, Asclepius was to Pergamum what Diana was to Ephesus. Remember we talked about the temple to uh, Artemis of the Ephesians, also known as Diana. Artemis of the Ephesians in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And if you were in Greece, you would go to the temple of Apollo at Delphi, and that was one of the major temples in Greece. And just as Apollo was central to Delphi and Artemis to Ephesus, so Asclepius was central to Pergamum. Pergamum was the center for the worship of Asclepius in the ancient world. And everywhere you looked in the city, there were serpent images. And of course, biblically, we know that a serpent is an image for Satan. It is you, Satan uh, empowered a serpent in the Garden of Eden. And then in the book of Revelation, there are several references to that serpent of old, the great dragon, uh, the devil. So there is the, that possibility. However, we must recognize that the worship of Asclepius wasn't limited to Pergamum. Furthermore, the serpent was also a symbol of Zeus. Now that's the second option, was that huge altar to Zeus that I had up there uh, earlier. This huge altar to Zeus. Zeus was known as Zeus Soter. But Asclepius was also called a savior because of this healing factor. 
in the worship of Asclepius. So this altar to Zeus was also a uh, site for pilgrimages to Pergamum in the ancient world. It was erected originally to commemorate the victory of the Pergamum kingdom over the Gauls. These, these Gauls were not the Gauls that went west to uh, France, set up the kingdom of Gaul there, or who went across the channel to Britain and were known there as Celts. This was an eastern branch who invaded down through Greece and jumped the Bosphorus over into Turkey around 250 B.C. Atullus I defeated them. This altar to Zeus, as you can tell, is quite enormous in its original condition. There were beautiful sculptures and statues that adorned it. It was a symbol of the rampant paganism in Pergamum at the time, but once again, there's nothing unique about it. There were statues and temples to Zeus in most of the cities of Greece. Another suggested interpretation for the meaning of the throne of Satan is that that Pergamum was the centerpiece for Christian persecution at that time. And this is indicated in the verse because it mentions the martyrdom of Antipas, who called my faithful servant. But that doesn't fit the scenario either because there are numerous persecutions throughout the next couple of centuries. Another suggested uh, interpretation for the throne of Satan is that it, well, this is because Pergamum was just more pagan and more hostile to Christianity than other cities. But again, that really doesn't hold water historically. What does seem to be true is that emperor worship was intense in Pergamum, more intense, as I mentioned earlier, than it was anywhere else. Pergamum led the city in the worship of the emperor, and in fact, this was the headquarters for emperor worship. They had deified the emperor. They built a temple to Augustus in 29 B.C. They had built a temple to the goddess Roma in the first part of the first century, and then they were to build a temple to Trajan. So all of this shows the the significance of emperor worship. And if you were a Roman citizen and you did not swear allegiance to the government, to the state, over any other god, then you put your life at risk. And you see, this is always the problem in pagan cultures and in non-biblically-based societies, is that someone always wants to fill the vacuum when God is removed from public discourse. When you take God out of the realm of public discourse, as many are trying to do today, take Him out of the courts, take Him out of the public schools, take God and the discussion of uh, the Bible and other uh, factors related to eternal truth out of, out of the public arena, then something always moves in. If God isn't the ultimate source of values for a culture, then who's going to replace Him? And when the government replaces God as the source of values, you are in tyranny. And that is exactly what has been going on for the last hundred years in America and in Western Europe. Government is now the final arbiter of everything. Government becomes a messianic figure. And this is just a precursor to what takes place during the tribulation period when it, it, the government of the revived Roman Empire will be embodied in the person of the Antichrist who is setting himself up as an alternative God. But this is why these culture wars that we're involved in today are so crucial. Because what is at stake is who ultimately determines the meaning of truth in a society. Is it the government or is it from something outside the state? And once the state becomes the final authority, then the state defines freedom. The state defines what is right and what is wrong. The state defines uh, all of the issues that matter in life. And once that happens, then freedoms will rapidly erode. Revelation 2.13 I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, 
And then the Lord goes on to say, in terms of a positive commendation, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful servant. Okay, in this verse we read, I know you hold fast. And the word there for holding fast is the Greek verb krateo. It's the present active indicative. And the present tense is a durative present. This is something that you continue to do. But the significance here is this verb. The verb was used earlier in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1 where it pictures the Lord Jesus Christ holding the the uh, lamp of the church. It is a, a, a holding firmly. It means to adhere strongly to something. The verb means to hold on or to take control of someone or something, to seize control, to take hold of something forcibly, and uh, also without the use of force, take hold of or grasp in the sense of seizing with power and authority. The idea here is to adhere strongly to something. This isn't just affirming biblical truth. This isn't just the idea of, of accepting the fact that you're a Christian and I believe in the Bible. But the idea here is to firmly adhere to biblical truth to the point that you're willing to give your life for it. And that was the case in this one instance mentioned uh, later in verse 13. They are praised because of their willingness to have a firm grasp on what? My name. Not just biblical truth in general, but specifically in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Bible, when we hear a reference to name, for example, Acts 4.12 says, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It is not talking about just a just nomenclature, just a tag uh, that is attached to an individual Jesus of Nazareth. It's talking about everything that that person is. It's talking about the totality of their character. That Jesus Christ isn't just another man. And this claim from the Scripture is the claim that that really irritates the fire out of all unbelievers and people operating on a non-biblical, relativistic scale of values. The Bible claims there's only one way to God. This is pictured from the Garden of Eden all the way through to Revelation chapter 22. Jesus made that exclusive claim. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by Me. Now, you only have two options. Either Jesus Christ was telling the truth, or He was lying. You can't say it's a half-truth, because a half-truth is a half-lie. So when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, either He is the only way to God, or He's not. If He's not the only way to God, then Jesus Christ can't be who He claimed to be, He can't be the God of the universe. He can't be the only way to salvation. In fact, he's a liar and a deceiver and a fraud, and he has maliciously deceived millions and millions of people down through the church age. So you're left with only one real option if you're honest with the evidence, and that is that Jesus is the only way to God. This is what's been pictured time and time again all through the Old Testament. For example, there was only one way of salvation at the time of the Noahic flood, and that was to respond to Noah's message and get on the ark. If you didn't respond to that message, if you thought God was loving, He would somehow save you, you drowned. That was it. God says there's only one way. I make the rules, and I'm going to tell you how it works. I mean, to think that God's going to say, well, anything can work is like a mechanic building a car and saying, well, you can run your internal combustion engine on whatever you want to put in the, in the tank as long as you're sincere about it. Well, that's just absurd. The manufacturer says there's only one thing that will make this engine work, and that's gasoline. God says there's only one way you're going to have a relationship with me, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm the one who makes the rules. And you see, man's basic problem since the garden is he doesn't want God to make the rules. 
Man wants to make the rules. Man wants to be the ultimate determiner of right and wrong. And God says, that's not going to work because you're not the boss. I'm the Creator. So they hold, holding fast to Christ's name, to His character, to an exclusive Christianity. And the verse goes on to say, and they did not deny my faith. That is doctrine. The word faith there is the noun pistis in the Greek, which means faith, but faith can be used in two ways. Subjectively, it means firm persuasion, conviction, belief, or trust in the truth. It refers to veracity, reality, or faithfulness. The idea here is how we normally use faith. That is, I have faith alone in Christ alone. I am trusting in Christ. I am believing that He is the only way to salvation. He died on the cross for my sins. Objectively, the word refers to what is believed, the content of faith. What's your faith? Are you Episcopal? Are you Presbyterian? What's your faith? What's your doctrine? Are you Islamic? Are you Jewish? Are you Roman Catholic? So what Jesus is saying here is you didn't deny my doctrine. You didn't deny the truth related specifically to Christology, my name, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr. Antipas is someone we don't know. His specific identity has been lost in church history. But he stood fast. He was willing to take whatever would come, not to compromise his values in terms of his orientation to the Lord Jesus Christ. The word martyr is from the Greek word martus, which refers to someone who testifies in legal matters. And in some cases, it refers to someone who witnesses at the cost of their own life, which is the case here. He was willing to continue his steadfast testimony of his life and his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, even to the point where it cost him his life. And so the Lord says, you did not deny my faith, even when you had all this external pressure against you in the days in which Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, and then again he says, where Satan dwells. That is this residence of satanic, intense satanic opposition. Now, that brings us to the opening question tonight. How do you live in the midst of a hostile environment? How do you live in the midst of a hostile spiritual environment? And the first question that we ought to ask is, are we living in a spiritually hostile environment? Are you living in one? Now, you may not be living in one in terms of your own marriage, your own family. Some of you have jobs where you work with small companies or or corporations, and everyone there is a believer, so there's no opposition. Others of you are in circumstances where there's a little opposition. If you really got out there and let it be known what you believe, you know that your job might be on the line, but because there are some believers in your periphery, that doesn't happen, so you don't really have to put it all on the line. Others of you are in circumstances where if you let it be known what you really believed about the policies and procedures of the company you work for, you would be walking the bread line tomorrow. Now, that's, a, that's where our beliefs really come down hard. And those are difficult decisions every believer has to face. Because whether you're working in a comfortable environment or whether you're operating in an overtly hostile environment, you have to recognize that in some sense, because we're living in the cosmic system, we're all living in a spiritually hostile environment. It's just that at the moment, your immediate environment may not be as hostile as others. We live in a situation where, in terms of our government and the culture of the United States, there is an increasing opposition to biblical Christianity. If you're living down here in Houston, Texas, or you're living in Dallas, Texas, which is called the buckle of the Bible belt, or you're living someplace else, Atlanta, Georgia, somewhere down in the south, then there is less cultural opposition. If you're living in 
some areas of Southern California out there on the left coast, or in some areas in the Northeast or some major metropolitan areas, then there's tremendous cultural opposition to biblical Christianity. And when you trust Christ as your Savior, that really means something, much more significant in many ways culturally than it does in the South. And when you recognize that you're a believer and you need to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you start going to church, it's not because there's this culturally accepted thing to do. I mean, one of the challenges pastoring in the South has been the fact that you'll have an attendance on Sunday morning that is maybe 50, in some places 60-70% more than what it will be Sunday night or Wednesday night. Because people really aren't positive to the Word, they just do what is culturally accepted and culturally comfortable, which means I go to church on Sunday morning. Now, the more pagan we become, the more that drops away. But that's the way it's been, and it's much more that way in the South. When I first went up to Connecticut and was pastoring at, at uh, Preston City, attendance on Wednesday night was probably about 60% of attendance on Sunday morning. Why? Because people went to church on Sunday morning because they were positive to the Word. They went on Wednesday night because they were positive to the Word. You don't have that cultural pressure to just be in church because it's Sunday morning. You go down south, it's a totally different story. And so people in the south have to recognize what are your real priorities. So we recognize that we live in various different arenas in this, even in our country, and there are different levels of, of uh, cultural antagonism to Christianity. But in our personal lives, there's other levels of threat. We have threats from uh, materialism. We live in a consumer society. And everywhere we turn, watching television, reading uh, magazines or journals, there's advertising, there's this thing to buy, that thing to buy, all kinds of things that feed that materialism Lust. On top of that, there's financial pressures. The financial pressures that come from living in a consumer society where there is also pressure from rising gas prices, food prices, uh, different things of that nature that put pressure on us. So therefore, people work more. I did a study, read a study years ago that showed that a family of four living on the farm in 1910 could produce a lifestyle at a certain level of affluence that could be was duplicated by a single wage earner working 40 hours a week in 1970. Now think about that. Family of four living on the farm, everybody working together, had a lifestyle that is duplicated by one man. I mean, that was a case in my home when I grew up. My dad worked, my mother didn't. He worked 40 hours a week and never knew him to work at night, go in on the weekends or anything of that nature. He worked 40 hours a week, and we had a very fluent lifestyle. Then, by 1980, if you remember that double-digit inflation that, that occurred in the high interest rates at the end of the 70s was a very subtle assault on the family. So that by 1984, it took two adults working 60 hours a week to live the same lifestyle one man produced working 40 hours a week 12 years earlier. Things change. Remember when you used to go to Bible class five nights a week, six nights a week? Can't do it anymore. Where are you at? Why? You're working too much. Your wife's working too much. She's working. You're working. You don't have time to have a spouse at home who's not working to take care of all those other details, like the laundry and cleaning the house and balancing the checkbook and all those other details. Why? Because there's a cultural pressure now that makes it more and more difficult to make Doctrine, a priority. So we don't have class quite as much because it puts too much pressure. All this is part of what happens living in a hostile environment. What's the key to living in a hostile environment? I want to pick up on this some more next time because we're running out of time. But the key is personal priorities. What's your real priority in life? Is it doctrine or is it all the other details of life that easily squeeze out doctrine? I want you to think about that. Think about how Ezra lived in the midst of a hostile environment coming out of Babylon. Think about how Daniel 
and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lived in the midst of a hostile Babylonian pagan education system. In contrast to all of the other Jews that were brought to Babylon, they hung in there. They, they would not succumb to the dietetic changes. They weren't going to compromise. They figured out ways to handle that pressure. You see, as a believer, the most important decision you make after you're saved is, is doctrine really a priority in my life or not? And if it is, it's going to change how you structure your time, your job, many other things. Now, I know there are different careers that, that come along and you just can't uh, uh, do certain things uh, during the daytime. You have to work at night. Some people work shifts, different things like that. But that's why we have tapes. That's why you have these other things. Your spiritual life has to become that number one priority. And let me tell you, bottom line, doctrine is not a priority in your life until you recognize that Bible doctrine is your life. When you recognize that doctrine is your life, that is when you're on the road to spiritual advance and spiritual growth. And you have to be re-educated in everything from a biblical viewpoint. And that's why you don't just come to Bible class once a week, once in a while, or listen to a tape once a week or once in a while. Because this education process that is called the renovation of the mind or the thinking in Revelation 12.2 is central to everything. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be challenged by these things, to recognize that here you have a church that, although they compromised in serious areas, as we'll see next time, this is a church that held fast and is praised by you for holding fast to your name, even in the midst of uh, physical persecution that could have cost them their own lives, and at least one case did. Father, we pray that we would recognize that there's a challenge here to each of us as to how serious we really are about our own spiritual life and how committed we are in terms of our own uh, orientation to doctrine. And we think of men like Ulan and, and thousands of others in this world who go through the, the very real persecution, overt hostile persecution of their Christianity on a day-to-day basis, and uh, often wonder how we would fare in those same circumstances. We continue to pray for him and his wife and their children, their safety, and we pray that you would uh, provide for them, confident that you will, as well as for those believers in Kyrgyzstan who are struggling with an oppressive uh, government and oppressive local leaders who threaten their very lives. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here this evening unsure of their salvation, or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do is to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. In your soul, the Lord Jesus Christ knows what you're believing. He's omniscient, and He knows the instant you put your trust in Him for your salvation, and at that instant you have eternal life, which can never be lost. This is your opportunity to make that choice as to whom you are trusting for salvation. Father, we pray that you would remind us of the things we've learned tonight and challenge us with them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.